So this season, uh, we've been spending some time in Paul's letter to the Philippians in a sermon series that we're calling Shine. Uh, And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, as children of God, we will shine like stars in the sky. There's a way that those following the way of Jesus are supposed to stand out. We are supposed to be different. Uh, But the last time I preached, I stressed that we need to stand out and be different in the right way. Uh, Not in a way that insists that we are always right, better, and superior to everyone else but in a way that actually imitates Christ, the way of humility, service, and sacrifice. The the way of not only looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And can you imagine what it would be like if more Christians did that? Just like you can only see stars in the sky when it's dark, uh, the moments when God's children shine the most, uh, maybe when it is darkest. Or at least that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to shine by fighting injustice and standing with the oppressed and marginalized and helping those in need. We're supposed to be doing the things that Jesus did. Uh, But one other way we might shine or be different is the way that we respond uh, when we ourselves are faced with adversity, difficulty, uh, or conflict. See, Any one of us can be nice until someone cuts us off in traffic, right? Or when someone says something insensitive or offensive to us. Or when we're stressed out about work or school or money. I heard someone say, if you squeeze a grape, you get grape juice. If you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. But if you squeeze a Christian, you never know what you're going to get. Will it be the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, etc. Or will it be something else? Will it be anger, insecurity, defensiveness, or even hostility? The only way to see what a person is really made of is to see what happens when they're squeezed or put under pressure. And this is a good setup for the context of what's happening in the book of Philippians that we've been studying, and and especially for the passage that we're going to be focusing on today. Because Paul is getting squeezed. He's writing to the Philippians from a Roman prison. And the recipients of his letter are also getting squeezed. They're being persecuted as followers of the way of Jesus. And so put simply, everyone under Roman occupation is supposed to bend their knee to Caesar as Lord. But these Christians were declaring and living in such a way that that said, Jesus is Lord. And since Christians were growing in number, uh, especially among these oppressed minorities, it's no wonder that the Roman Empire applied some downward pressure squeeze. And it's important to keep in mind that this is the situation that Paul is addressing in this letter. He is not exactly speaking to mostly comfortable middle-class people in a nation where Christianity is still the majority religion. In other words, he's not really speaking directly to us, but there are still lessons that we can learn. 
He's speaking to people who are afraid that at any moment they'll be taken from their families or their families will be taken from them. At any moment, they could be thrown in prison or face violence or even death. So try to put yourself in the Philippians' shoes as I read what Paul writes to them. Imagine you're in Philippi. This is Philippi, and this is a secret gathering of believers, followers of the way. And every, we're all wondering, what, what is happening with Paul? I mean, we don't know if he's dead or alive. And we've been waiting for some word and some news about what's going on. And, and suddenly somebody comes and says, hey, we got a letter. We got a letter. So as is our custom here in Philippi, let's stand. Yeah, for real, let's stand. And listen to what this letter, letter says, Philippians 4. Ready? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to know how many of you are stressed? How many of you feel stress or anxiety on a regular basis? You don't have to raise your hand again. I'm, I'm going to assume most of you. Um, according to studies, around three quarters of adults in America experience regular physical or psychological symptoms due to stress. Three quarters. And one-third of all Americans are chronically stressed. And we live in one of the most safest, most stable societies in all of history. So what's going on? Right. We are all born with this instinctive response to stress. Uh, when we are facing a potentially dangerous situation, our bodies release stress hormones that increase our blood pressure and heart rate and prepare our muscles for fight or flight. And this was really useful back in the day when you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, but in our modern world, that same fight-or-fight stress response can be triggered by things like a looming deadline or a final exam, or a huge pile of laundry to do, or a stack of bills to pay, or a conflict at work or at home, or a person who cuts you off in traffic. A little acute stress is normal and sometimes even necessary. Our stress response 
can help us stay up at night to make a deadline or write a sermon or do well on an exam or even save us in a genuinely dangerous situation. But long-term chronic stress, the kind that never leaves even after the threat is gone, can cause all kinds of physical problems like fatigue and muscle tension, problems with digestion, uh, headaches, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, not to mention all of the mental health problems it can cause like depression and panic disorder and just being a generally cranky and mean person. I, like probably some of you, suffer from chronic stress. It first started with having trouble sleeping at night. I would toss and turn and constantly rehearse different scenarios or difficult problems or situations in my mind. Then the tension in my neck and shoulders never seemed to go away. And these symptoms were my body's way of sending a distress signal. Help. Something's wrong. My mind was cluttered, you know, I felt overburdened, overwhelmed all the time, and I would be easily triggered by seemingly small and insignificant things. Squeeze, Eugene. Not such great things would come out. Does this sound familiar to any of us? If not for us personally, then maybe for someone we know. For me, all of this makes a passage like the one we just read seem very perplexing. Rejoice in the Lord always? I would settle for just sometimes, or even just once in a while would be great. When Paul describes the, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, that's about the only part I could relate to because it definitely transcended my understanding. I just didn't get it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Many of you live with constant anxiety, worry about your grades or getting a job or whether you're in the right job. You worry about being able to make payments or paying off your loans. You worry about finding a spouse or partner or whether your current significant other is the right person for you. You worry about whether your marriage will survive or whether you'll ever have kids. You worry about your kids being safe enough or falling behind or getting bullied in school. You worry about getting a diagnosis back from the doctor or about some other tragedy befalling a loved one. Maybe you keep replaying that awkward interaction with a classmate or a difficult coworker in your head over and over. Or maybe you're so stressed out you are that difficult coworker. We have too much to do, too little time, too many demands, too little of ourselves to go around. We belong to 20 clubs. There's too much out of our control. And we haven't even mentioned all the things going on in the world to worry about. War in Gaza, COVID, mass shootings, rising inequity, global warming. To all of this, Paul might have some important words for us today. Are you ready? Do not be anxious about anything. Okay? Everybody got it? Just don't be anxious. Let's pray. That's easier said than done, isn't it? 
At first, it's kind of, it, it, it kind of sounds like what some call spiritual bypassing. I'm going to teach you a word today. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it's our tendency to sidestep or bypass difficult things using spiritual language or ideas. It's a way of avoiding reality by hiding behind spiritual platitudes. When someone is experiencing a loss or tragedy, it's saying, God has a plan. Or when someone is facing hardship, it's saying, have you prayed about it? It's usually accompanied by some form of magical thinking, denial of our emotions, or toxic positivity that's out of touch with reality. God won't give you more than you can handle. I'm horrified that thousands of people are suffering and being killed in Gaza. But God is in control. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Amen? Amen? Spiritual bypassing can be harmful because it superficially glosses over problems in a way that might make us feel better in the short term, but doesn't actually solve or address anything. It keeps us removed from reality and keeps us from growing and, and taking responsibility. Real life is extremely complicated, sometimes contradictory, most of the time a mystery. Spiritual bypassing oversimplifies it with pat answers. And do you know what spiritual by bypassing sounds like? It kind of sounds like rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. What is Paul saying here? This is a little bit of a side tangent, but one of the most common mistakes we can make with Scripture is to read something written to a particular people on a particular occasion or for a particular purpose, take it out of context, and apply it to any and all situations. And I submit this poster, right? This is just a few verses later in our, in our chapter, as Exhibit A. It says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, football. No, sorry, not about winning football games. It's actually about being content whatever our circumstances. Whether in need or in plenty, well-fed or hungry, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's about being resilient in the face of suffering, not winning the Super Bowl. And what that poster should really say is, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. All right? What is that? Second Opinions 3.15. Remember that. So let's get back to the context. Who is Paul speaking to and why is he saying it? Remember, Paul is in prison, his freedom's been taken away, his life is in danger, and the Christians he's writing to are under constant threat of being arrested, having their livelihoods taken from them, being separated from their loved ones. And most of us can't even imagine having that much to fear, that much to lose, being that helpless to do anything about it. And yet Paul dares to say, Rejoice. Not just once, just in case you missed it. 
He says it again. Rejoice. And don't be anxious about anything. Here's another side note, and this is an important one. That's why I'm making space for it. Sometimes anxiety isn't about our situation or the choices we've made. Sometimes anxiety is the result of a physiological imbalance or even trauma. And some of us simply have anxiety in our bodies. And I, I want to be clear that this isn't what Paul is addressing here. So if you struggle with anxiety in this way, we are blessed by God to have therapists and doctors who may be able to help. And there might be a spiritual component to it. But just like spiritual bypassing, we have to be careful not to spiritualize a medical or psychological problem. Okay? Understood? Side note ended. We need to remember that this letter is not being written to an individual, but to a community of people, right? To us here in Philippi. He's not speaking to someone going through a rough patch. And I would hope that if he were, he would respond with appropriate empathy and compassion. But that's not what this letter is. With these words, he's giving a final exhortation, an encouragement to a community of people. And I believe that makes all the difference in the way that we understand this. He's speaking to a group of people about what they together can do to endure an uncertain and troubling time. So the way I read this is not as a command, as in like, rejoice. Don't make me say it again. Rejoice. No. These are words of comfort and encouragement. It's more like a pep talk. It's like he's saying, chin up. Take heart. I know it's hard, but we still have reason to rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Reading between the lines, I don't think he's denying that this is a hard situation. So all the more reason when he says rejoice, you know he means it. And then he continues, and he gets quite realistic about what the Philippians can do in the face of so much adversity. He says in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And in the next verse, the word Paul uses for anxious uh, actually comes from two Greek words, one that means divided into parts or pieces, and another that means mind. So together it means having a divided mind. And so one way of understanding the kind of anxiety he's talking about is to have our minds pulled apart in different directions or even divided into pieces. Isn't that how anxiety often feels? Like you're being pulled in too many di directions at once. Your mind just keeps jumping from thing to thing, and it can feel like you're hanging on by a thread. And one more thing going wrong or out of place or out of control can just make you snap. Some of us might feel like we're already in pieces right now. 
Now contrast that with the word for peace. Peace comes from a word that means to gather into one or to be made whole. So if anxiety is to be divided and pulled in different directions, then peace is to be put back together again in harmony, to be made whole and complete. And so this image has helped me understand what's going on in me when I feel stressed. When I feel stressed, I can ask myself, what are the forces that are pulling me apart right now? What are the inner conflicts that are going on? So much of my stress and anxiety is caused by the conflict between all the different pieces in me, all the different parts. The things I want, but don't have. The things I fear, but can't control. The people I love, but can't help or protect. How do we pull ourselves back together again? How do we find peace, wholeness, togetherness? In this passage, uh, Paul gives us three pra pretty practical suggestions. First, Paul exhorts us to pray. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And he says to do this in every situation. There's nothing too big or too small, no topic, no circumstance that God cannot be found in, that God will not hear. I just want to give a little plug here. How many of you know that we have a prayer ministry that meets every Sunday before our service. So everyone, I assure you, feels bad at prayer, including myself. So when, whenever you hear this point in a sermon, you know, it's like, oh, not that, not that again, right? But one of the things that helps greatly is praying with other people. And so gathering with prayer ministry before service can be a great way to start your Sunday, but it can be a great way to fellowship. And so if you're interested in that, I'll be up here after service. I'll let you know how to get connected. What Paul is not saying is that when we pray and ask God, he gives us everything we want and makes everything work out in our favor. God is not a genie. Prayer is not a good luck charm. He does not promise good outcomes or safety or success. But he does promise something deeper and more lasting, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I know prayer is a really big word. It means different things to different people. Uh, there are many forms, different approaches to prayer. Sometimes we have lots of words to say to God, and other times we might just listen. But when we feel pulled in different directions and we don't know where to turn, our, our head is going like this. Prayer is a way to pull ourselves back together in the direction of our Heavenly Father. It's simply a way to focus our attention on God. When our uh, daughter Emily was around four or five years old, uh, she was super cute and adorable, uh, but she was old enough to understand the perils of visiting the doctor's office for her annual checkup, okay? 
Um, and it was one of those years when she had to get a routine blood check, you know, when they draw blood. And we were in the waiting room, and the nurse comes out and calls Emily's name. And immediately, Emily got up and started to panic, full blown. And so like my wife and I were on one end of the waiting room, and the nurse was standing by the door, ready to take Emily in to get her blood drawn. And little Emily was frozen right between us like a cornered animal. And I can see that she was literally in this mental tug of war. And so we would try to move toward her like, Emily, it's time to go. She was like, no! Followed by some pretty impressive bargaining techniques for a five-year-old. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Can we talk about it for a minute? Let's talk about this, you know? And then much more loudly, like, why do we have to? Good question. I mean, how do you explain, you know, to a five-year-old? She was stressed, clearly. She was conflicted, pulled apart, torn between her natural aversion to pain and the reality of the pain she must face. On one side was the nurse who seemed nice and friendly and smiling, but she also had a needle. On the other side was her mom and dad, source of strength and comfort and love, but also the ones bringing her to get poked by needles. Ultimately, she had to choose. She had to trust us, allow us to drag her and carry her into the laboratory room. And once we were in that room, I had her sit in my lap, and I said, Emily, look at me. Look at me. And by instinct, she would kind of look down at her arm where the nurse is starting to put on the tourniquet, and I said, M, M, M. That's what I call her. Look at me. It's going to be okay. And as she felt the prick of the needle going in, her eyes started to fill with tears, but they were still focused on me. I said, you're doing great. You're being so brave. Emily, great job. Just keep looking at me. We're almost done. There. See? All done. And just like that, God sees the turmoil in us. God sees our fear, our conflict, and our pain. And he says, look at me. Focus on me. Bring that problem to me. Don't be anxious or pulled apart. No matter the situation, pray. Talk to me about it. And I'll take all those pieces that you're trying to hold on your own, and I will hold them together with you. Trust me. Focus on me. That's what we do in prayer. We bring ourselves and we bring our situations to God and we focus our attention on him. So the first thing Paul advises and exhorts us to do is to pray. The second thing Paul advises is to gain perspective. He says... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, it can distort our picture of reality. Our fears can overtake us and our perspective can get cast under a dark shadow. And if you've ever been in the forest at night, 
you'll know that things that looked really beautiful and pretty in the light can look very different in the dark. And in our anxiety and worry, Paul is encouraging us to meditate on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Why? Because that's how we look for God in even the darkest situations. Where is God in the midst of crisis or cancer? Where is God in the midst of a breakup or losing a job? One thing that's been helpful to me through many situations has been to simply ask, where is God in this? Where is God in this? Several years ago, I went through a season of significant loss and pain. Uh, my whole life was disrupted. And the future was unclear and uncertain. All I could do was trust that even during this confusing and lonely time, I was not actually alone. I kept looking for where God was at work in this. Jesus promised, seek and you will find, and I did. I found that God was with me and working through even these painful circumstances, and it kept me moving forward in hope and faith. But if I hadn't been looking, I might have, I might have missed all that and just been lost in despair. And so that's why I think Paul says, think on these things. Look for God. And when Paul says to think about things that are noble and admirable, I also think of this now well-known quote from Mr. Rogers. It seems to go around every time that there's a national tragedy. Uh, and he says, when I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And that's one way we can look for goodness even in the midst, even in the midst of tragedy and horrible things happening in our world. It can remind us that God is still at work. Looking for the helpers is good, but it can be even better to get off our butts and become one of those helpers. Because the third thing Paul advises is to put things into practice. When we're anxious, we can pray, we can look for perspective, but sometimes the best thing we can do is to simply move and do something. Get unstuck in whatever way we can. Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. In the great cinematic masterpiece, Frozen 2, Anna, uh, one of the movie's heroines, faces a truly dark situation where she's experiencing tremendous loss with seemingly no hope. And she sings this amazing song, and some of the lyrics go, just do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It is all that I, it's hard not to say it in like the cadence of the song. Um, to do all that I can to do the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step. This next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. 
I love that movie, by the way. When we're anxious and confused, we may not feel like rejoicing or praying or meditating on what is true, noble, and right. We may not even understand what is happening to us. But those are the times when we need to walk by faith and not by sight. When we need to put one foot in front of the other and do the next right thing, however small. And when we do, Paul assures us that the God of peace will be right there with us. And so the next right thing for you might mean practicing self-care or telling the truth or doing something about that cause you care about. Or it could mean keeping a commitment or practicing generosity or forgiving someone. It, it's, it's proven that one of the most effective ways to get out of a slump is to focus on helping and serving others. To put things into practice. That's where the rubber meets the road. Doing the next right thing means simple obedience. Putting into practice what you already know and have learned from God. So much of our stress and anxiety is a little bit of a heart challenging word is the result of us not doing the right thing. Let me say that again. So much of our stress and anxiety is a result of us not doing the right thing. It's a result of our own sin or double-mindedness. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in the same way, we cannot serve both God and our pride, our vanity, greed, or selfishness. We want to be holy and live in service to God and others. But we also want worldly success and comfort. We want to live sacrificially like Jesus. But we're also afraid of sacrificing too much. And When we're divided and pulled apart, Jesus wants to put us back together again. He wants us to look at him. Focus on him. Look for where God is at work around us. And he wants us to walk in simple obedience. He wants to give us wholeness and peace, but we might have to choose whom we will serve. Jesus said to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things we might worry about will be given to us as well. That's the promise. So what's pulling you apart? What's dividing your mind? Perhaps the reason you're anxious is that you're trying to serve too many masters. And maybe you need to resolve or recommit yourself to one thing above all. To make Jesus Lord in your life. To seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. I'd like to lead us through a quick exercise of these three exhortations from Paul. Prayer, perspective, 
and practice. And while we do this, Ben can probably just come up because we're gonna roll right into communion and all that. Bring your communion cups. <clears throat> First, settle into your chairs, make your kind of, you know, make yourselves comfortable, but not too comfortable. Uh, maybe you can sit up. Uh, I wanna encourage you to close your eyes and perhaps just hold your hands in your lap in an open posture. And I wanna invite you to think of an area in your life that makes you worried. Something that causes you fear and anxiety. And I invite you to hold that in your mind and ask yourself, what are the pieces of me that are being pulled in different directions? Where am I conflicted? School? Relationships? Work? Your own personal holiness? And then whatever that stressful situation or source of anxiety is, I'd like you to bring that to God with prayers and petitions, with thanksgiving, presenting your needs, your desires honestly to him. Focus your attention on the God who loves you. Let God hold all those pieces together. Then in that same situation, try on a new perspective in the light of God's love and presence. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, think about such things. Ask, where is God in this? And then finally, ask yourself, what would it mean to put into practice what you've learned from Jesus in this situation? What does following Jesus look like for you? What is the next right thing God may be calling you to do? perspective, practice. Do not be anxious about anything, but rejoice because the Lord is near, near to you now, near to us. <clears throat>